I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. This is Thurl Bailey, and welcome to Thurl Talk. It's good to have you back for another episode, and uh, I am so excited today to have a guy who, during my playing days, was a fierce competitor. As a matter of fact, he's a little older than I. Well, we're probably around the same age, but he became a professional before I did. Isaiah Thomas. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about him before I bring him on the show. 1981. This is this may be the only thing we have in common, other than we both play at the highest level. Won an NCAA championship in 1981 with Bobby Knight and the Indiana Hoosiers at Indiana University. Um, he, at this current time, is a broadcaster for NBA TV and has worked with some of the greats on, on TNT, played his entire professional career with the Detroit Pistons. Not many guys, uh, Josh, do that these days, stay with one team. I, I played with a couple of guys who did it. One of the 50 greatest players in the in, in NBA history, inducted to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Famer. And uh, just one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to be around. Now, I'm going to add a little bit to that off the court. Because back in the day... The Detroit Pistons and Isaiah Thomas, they they weren't messing around. Isaiah, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, and, and thank you for that, that kind introduction, and I, I appreciate you. And, um, you know, I I never forget how uh, Sweet 41 uh, shot it. Whenever, whenever, <laughs> the corkscrew whenever, jumper? Whenever, yeah, whenever, whenever it got to your hands, it was like everybody would just put their head down. It was like, ah, oh, that's too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're going to talk some basketball, of course, but you were one of those guys early on who, you know, even, you know, they call them bigs and smalls today, but you, were, you weren't messing around in the paint, right? You weren't afraid to get in there and get knocked down. You had that, that um, determination that regardless of, who was in the paint, you were getting in there to score, and you did a great job of it, of it over your career. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, growing up on, on the west side of Chicago and, and playing a lot of basketball outside, um, you know, you you know, the Chicago is nicknamed the Windy City. So you, <laughs> you weren't practicing uh, your jump shot much uh, during that period of time. So... You you had to be creative in terms of getting to the basket, and little did I know that that would be uh, very helpful uh, once I got to the NBA. 
Well, Zeke, this this show, this show, Thorough Talk, is, is about journeys, and you obviously have had a great one. And, and I want to get more into your journey personally, but I want to get some things out of the way right now uh, because there's a lot going on, right? Uh, COVID nineteen. How have you been navigating through this pandemic? You know, personally, professionally, uh, just you know, from a distance and, and, and kind of seeing this whole thing play out. You know, obviously the NBA is starting back up, and I think you just got off of a of an NBA TV broadcast about what the team is going through. But in a nutshell, just kind of talk to us about what that has been like in your world. You know, it, it's it's been a, it's been a, a very um, uh, enlightening time for, for myself, um, and and also for our family. So, first of all, um, my, my daughter tested positive, and uh, she was uh, you know had to self quarantine and right. then uh, wasn't able to be tested for a while. So during that period of time. Um, you know, this is the first time that we couldn't be around, um, you know, uh, one of our family members who needed us, but they had to be by themselves. Uh, we couldn't hug our daughter. We couldn't go see her. So that was, that was a difficult time. Uh, but what came out of that time was just a, a family unity in terms of, you know, my kids now are you know, older, they're, they were out of the house. Um, now everybody is, is back in the house together. And, yes. you know, getting, getting to, to know your, your son and your, and your daughter and, you know, your, your, your family structure again, putting that back in place, uh, because everybody was out in the world. So I, I just think that this is a, a unique time for, for families and, and relatives to come together and really uh, have deep, meaningful conversations that you never probably would have got a chance to do had the world stayed normal. So that's how I've looked at the pandemic in terms of it's given me an opportunity to really uh, reconnect with family and then reconnect with myself in terms of, you know, finding my inner peace, my inner strength, my inner thoughts, uh, because, you know, we travel so much, always on the plane, always moving, always, you know, having to do something. So using this steel time, uh, even though it's been a, a tough time uh, with the virus and everything else, uh, I've tried to find, um, you know, the, the the silver lining in the clouds. That's a great perspective, Isaiah, really great perspective. And you said everything else, because there's other things going on in the world, too, right now. There's there's a, the racial and social unrest. Obviously, the George Floyd murder really brought an awakening to us, to a lot of people, both black and white. Um, you grew up around the same time as I did. I think you were born in April. I was, our birthdays aren't too far apart. I was born in 61 in April, on April 7th. And you were raised in Chicago. So, you know, in the, in the late mid-60s in the city, uh, I'm sure that you know you remember some of those times when it was uh, a, a racial divide. But talk to me now, along with everything that's going on, how you've been able to interpret or deal with some of this uh, this 
racial inequality and just the unrest that's going on right now. I'm hoping that we all are better for it in the end, but right now it's, you know, it's something that we're all dealing with. So you, you and I are both, um, you know, born in, 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 in 61. Um, I'm, I'm born on April 30th. You're, you're April 7th. And, um, you know, during our first 10 years of life, um, you know, um, Kennedy is assassinated in 63, uh, 65, uh, Malcolm X is assassinated. Um, 67 and 68, we have the Chicago and Detroit riots. Um, and 68 also Martin Luther King is assassinated. 69, uh, Fred Hampton is assassinated. Uh, I grew up on the West side of Chicago and uh, you know from playing at the Chicago Stadium and in the United Center, there's only one university or one college that's named after Malcolm X, and that's in Chicago, and that's on the west side of Chicago, Malcolm X College. Yep. Martin Luther King, when he came to Chicago, literally moved four blocks from my house, and my mother worked with Fred Hampton. Uh, so all of that, that unrest that was happening uh, on the west side of Chicago, um, you know, my mom did have babysitters. We grew up extremely poor. And uh, so we we participated in all the marches. Uh, we participated in all the rallies. And the first time I had um, a weapon pointed at me was by the United States government uh, when they shut down uh, Chicago and the National Guard came in. Wow. I'll never forget, they rolled up off the Eisenhower Expressway. And I lived 3340 West Congress. And the tank rolled up off the Eisenhower Expressway, and the barrel of the tank rolled around and pointed directly at our house uh, because they were shutting down uh, the city. They were shutting down the west side of Chicago. So what were we fighting for then? Uh, The same things that we're still fighting for today. We're fighting for equality in the system that uh, is systemically set up to oppress us uh, and deny us of all of all birthright in terms of uh, liberty, uh, freedom, peace, love, and, and justice. Um, you know, so I'm excited about this time uh, because just like the 60s, when, when we were able to, even though everyone got assassinated, everyone got killed in terms of our leaders. Yes. Uh, out of the 60s, we did make some changes within the judicial system and within the United States government. And, you know, again, 65, we the Voting Rights Act passed. Uh, 64, I think it was the Fair Housing Act passed. Um, so in terms of uh, desegregating and, and becoming a part of uh, the, the American system, uh, that we had been denied and still are denied uh, based on how much melanin you have in your skin. Yeah. Uh, you're classified as either black or white or people of color. What we all are truly fighting for is just to be Americans and not be labeled by a color, whether you classify as white, black, brown, um, red, um, 
the caste system that we're living up under is a color-coded caste system. And right now, uh, we have people from all different uh, colors coming out onto the street and marching and saying, we need to end this systemic, color-coded, casted racism, racism that we are living under in this, in this country. And I think it's exciting right now. Well said, Isaiah. And listen, I know my, my folks were hopeful back during that struggle. Uh, I remember them being uh, in Washington, D.C. at the monument when Martin Luther King came for his famous I Have a Dream speech and then educating us on those times when we lived in D.C. But um, just well stated, and I, I just hope that um, people are listening to those words that you just talked about because um, they're, they're not it's even beyond that they're so important is that what's happening right now and what happens going forward in the next month, few months and years, it's really going to be important for the progress in which, which hopefully we all are trying to make in every level. But I really appreciate your, your thoughts on that. Um, so there's one more thing I want to address with you before I, I, I get into your personal journey is that uh, the last dance, right? Um, everybody watched it, really the only sports-related thing on TV for a while. And uh, I read somewhere where you stated that you were really into it because it gave people a chance to peek behind the curtain, have a deeper look into how teams operated. Um, but obviously the Pistons and, and you in particular were – frequent topics of discussion through all that. How did how did the last dance affect you personally watching it and, and hearing things about yourself, like Michael talked about specific things about you? Um, and uh, my guess is that you didn't go on social media very much at that time, did you? Uh, no, I did, but I, I did a couple of interviews, uh, uh, one, one with uh, ESPN, uh, and then I did another one on uh, Fox, uh, with uh, Jason Whitlock. Um, uh, so I did one with Jason Whitlock, and then I did one with uh, Stephen A. Smith uh, on ESPN. Um, you know, it was interesting uh, watching it, um, you know, because, you know, we we we, we as, as former players uh, are still fans of the game. That's right. And even when we were playing, we still were fans of, of one another. And uh, I always looked at uh, Chicago, um, you know, being from Chicago, and then Jordan being such a great player. And you know, when we were when we were all uh, you know in the league together as being part of the union, you know, being 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 the president of the union at that time, you know, it was hey, you, he helped us get to fifty three percent of the growth. <laughs> <That's> so, <right. laughs> you know, so. Uh, everything that it was going on, you know, there was there was one part of you that was like, uh, yeah, but then there was another part of you like, oh yeah, he just did that on me. <laughs> so I, you know, um, but watching it, um, my my first impression was I never had a chance to, <coughs> excuse me, to really peek behind the curtain in terms of what the Chicago Bulls interworkings were like right. from a team standpoint you always 
you always play against the opponent when they come out of the locker room, but you never really know what's going on inside the locker room. That's right. Uh, on their bus rides, on their plane rides. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Being able to see him in the Chicago Bulls from that vantage point gave me a a, a totally different look uh, from a competition standpoint of the people that we were competing against. Yeah. And after watching it, um, I I I looked at the you know I was surprised to see the the they had so much dysfunction in house. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really shocked at the relationship that they all personally had with Jerry Krause. Yes, uh, because you know, girl, when we was playing, I mean the 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 three the three gods, right? You know, it was, um, you know, Jerry Krause, Jerry West, and then Jack McCloskey, That's you know, right. in terms of the people who had won. And I know how the Lakers, and, and Red Auerbach, I'm sorry, I know how the Lakers and the Celtics, and I know how we felt about, you know, all team president and, and leader and Jack McCloskey and Jerry West and, and, and also Red Auerbach with the Celtics. And I was surprised to see, um, the the disrespect that they had for for Jerry Krause, uh, who had really put together a, a juggernaut of a basketball team from a management standpoint. Um, yeah, and you when know. you and when you see that, you see the the success on the outside that a team or organization is having. You're assuming, right, that things are running mm-hmm. smooth. Well, yeah, because you. you you're saying they're winning championships, so this must be the model that we all need to imitate, right? Right. Right. <laughs> but so having a chance to see it, you know, from behind, you're like, oh wow, that's. So I didn't I didn't realize there was that this that much dysfunction. And the other thing I, I didn't realize that uh, while competing against them is that um, as a team, you always thought that they were so well connected. Mm-hmm. But then, when you hear the interviews and everything else, you see that there was a lot of disconnect uh, and a lot of friction within the team. But that just, again, that just goes to speak to um, them being able to overcome all of that and still win, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. Well, well, let's be honest, Isaiah. You and the Pistons were a problem. You were a problem, and you were a problem for a lot of teams, but you were a problem to Jordan and the Bulls to try to get to where they wanted to go. And so there's a conflict there that, you know, it should never turn personal, right? But there's a conflict there that, you know, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants the championship. What do we have to do to get through this problem? And so um, that was very vivid in the documentary obviously and and you know of course when when a guy like michael has the narrative of that uh you get to kind of peek behind not just his point of view right because you know, you believe what you want to believe but you also have the point of views of his own teammates like you just said there's some dysfunction there that i probably wouldn't have guessed um but also uh you know it's it's not personal it's business, and this is what this is what we do on the court. So I I, I was I was shocked um, to to hear his 
personal feelings um, that he had towards me because I, you know, I, I never, I never knew that. Right. Um, I just thought that again, it was the, the, the Pistons uh, against the Bulls and, and, um, you know, at, at that time, uh, you know, I looked at I looked at Magic and Bird. Those were the two people that I was chasing in terms of trying to win championships. Uh, at that particular time, um, you know we we were we were beating Chicago uh, pretty pretty soundly. <laughs> um, and and, it, and I'm I'm not trying to I'm not trying to downplay it or anything, but it did make me go back and look at you know, our head-to-head competition. Yeah. And had, was I mistaken in terms of my recollection? And, you know, head-to-head competition, uh, you know, my record against <laughs> against uh, him, you know, was 37 and 16 <laughs> uh, up until 1991 uh, when I uh, had career-ending wrist surgery. Right. Um, and, and that's when they, they beat us. But, you know, I... You know, I was I was more focused on trying to catch the Lakers and the Celtics, so I, I never really because that know, Jordan era Jordan hadn't really I, happened. It hadn't really happened. Yeah, yet. yeah, and and he and I didn't, you know, we didn't socialize or anything because back then, you know, you you played the game and and you went home. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, uh, so I never really got to know him. So I I was really surprised, um, you know, to to hear uh the way he felt about me personally because i've never really interacted with him in the times that i have interacted with him even after we were done playing was always cordial yeah. uh, you know was always uh professional and you know like any of us uh who are former players when we see each other we we give each other respect and love That's and right. And and then you keep moving. So I never knew that he had any personal feelings um, for me the way that he showed in the last dance. So I was very surprised by that. Well, and, and, and we'll move on from here. But listen, it was made for TV, Zeke. I mean, it, it, it was his opportunity, right? His opportunity to to say his piece the way he wanted to say it, obviously. And, um, and you even talked about, you know, a, away from the court. I think he even signed some shoes for your son or something at one point. So, you know, we have the saying that we, we leave it on the court, right? And and so um, it was just interesting from my perspective and, and I think from most people who watched it to see this, this buildup for this documentary that was coming out and you knew that you were going to learn some things new. But I know as well as you know that you know this made for TV thing has to be you know obviously has to be a powerful documentary and so um I, I really respect and and grateful for your kind of your reaction and comments about all this because I, I feel like even though you know you and I never hung out, we we, we had some great competitive times together and, and we've seen each other away from basketball. But I've always looked up to you in that sense that you've always handled yourself. I've looked up to you in the business world um, and the way you, you carried yourself. But now I want to get more into Isaiah Thomas. I'm gonna t- we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and talk about 
your journey. You're going to throw me into a time machine and tell me how in the world the youngest of nine children on the west side of Chicago in the late 60s ended up being one of the 50 greatest players ever. We'll be right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Thorough Talk. We're here with the great Isaiah Thomas. And uh, Isaiah, we just we left off talking about uh, you know the last dance in that documentary. But let's move into your journey, man. I mean, you started playing at three years old. Heck, I didn't pick up a basketball until I was 14. And I just picked it up to move it out of my way. But um, you started hoops at an early age. Was that something that you gravitated towards? How did you... How'd you find that that rock? Uh, all my brothers played on on the grade school team, uh, Our Lady of Sorrows, that um, that we went to school at. And my mother actually worked at Our Lady of Sorrows, where she uh, would cook for the the brothers and nuns. Uh, she worked in the monastery, um, and you know we had to do janitorial work, and and uh, that's how we were able to uh, help you know, pay for, you know, uh, schooling. Right. Uh, we would all, she was cooking and, and we were cleaning. How many brothers? Uh, uh, six brothers, two sisters. Okay. So the, so the whole family, we, we started off, uh, you might say we started off in the, in the janitorial business. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, but, um, Anyway, uh, so my brothers played on the team, and again, we, we had no babysitters or anything like that. So uh, wherever they went, uh, they had to take me with them. And as they were playing, I would, you know, I would sit and watch or, you know, dribble up and down the sidelines or, or what have you. And just through, um, through imitating them uh, and watching them play uh, football, basketball, uh, baseball, you know, as you were growing up back then, as I'm sure you did also, everything was seasonal. Uh, That's so right. when it was football season, we played football. When it was baseball season, we played baseball, and then you played basketball. And so I became uh, the official water boy because um, at that age, they had to take me to the games with them. And so Brother Alexis at that time just said, okay, well, you'll be the water boy. So I was like the towel boy that would go out and, you know, rub the floor and clean up and everything. And just being around them all the time gave me insight into the game uh, at a very young age from a teaching standpoint. And what it, what it gave me is not, not the skills of the game, but how important it was to be a good teammate and a good person and what that all meant. So learning the values of the game at an early age um, 
I think that that helped me tremendously as as time would go on. Now, here's something about when you were young and you it'd be like halftime at these games, you'd be out there dribbling and as as a youngster, you you'd be kind of the halftime entertainment. I, I was the halftime entertainment, not because I could dribble so good, but because I was so little and would try to dribble. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, you, you get better as time went on and, um, and I'll never forget, um, uh, I didn't, I, so I didn't have gym shoes. So I always played in my, in what we call our school shoes. And, um, you know, you, you get out on the floor and, and, and I'll never forget one of the biggest thrills of my life at that time was they let me get in the layup line with them. Uh, and, <laughs> And when I was in kindergarten, so I was on the eighth grade team, I was in the layup line with, with the eighth grade team. And, and then when I got back to school the next day, the, the principal said I couldn't be in the layup line anymore because it was against the school rules or whatever. But I remember that day. That was a great day. That's awesome. So um, your journey takes you at some point, it takes you to uh, St. Joseph's High in Winchester, Illinois. How did you come about? And and I heard there's a your coach there. Is it Gene? Help me with the last thing. Is it Pingator? Pingator, yes. Coach Gene Pingator was was kind of a mentor for you. That um, you know, I told my story one of my first episodes about how I got cut twice in junior high school by a coach, and that coach left. But another coach came in. I was still as I was still just as bad, but another coach came in and kept me on the team because he saw something different in me. Is this was that the guy for you? Was that Coach Pingator? You know, I I would say um, yes, uh, but also um, I, I still have to go back to to my brothers, my sisters, and and just you know uh, people in the neighborhood who the village who on, on yeah who on different days uh, find a way to give you some food or. or you know, help you along the way in terms of getting to school uh, when you didn't have any money, when you didn't have uh, food. Uh, and the reinforcement, as you say, from the village is the thing that, that always kept me moving forward. Because, you know, during, you know, during your teenage years and during your younger years, you know, there are a lot of times, um, especially when you're growing up in the type of poverty that, that we grew up in, in, in terms of uh, all of us, you're very tempted to go wrong. You're very tempted to do wrong. And you're actually rewarded for doing wrong right. uh, from a monetary standpoint. Uh, so uh, people along the way who would, you know, take their last quarter and give it to you so you wouldn't have to steal. Or if you did take something, if the person who who caught you as opposed to, uh, you know, sending you to jail understood that you were you were hungry at the time and then would give you money to pay for yeah. what it is that, that you had done. So I was very lucky and very fortunate uh, because we were that poor. But when I got to St. Joseph, I, I found a coach that uh, not only, uh, you know, cared about me as a, as a basketball player, but also a, as a person. And uh, the school that I went to, um, we only had, uh, you know, it was a, um, a school of uh, 800 boys, and only uh, 37 of us were African American, and so there was a lot of um, you know racial tension in the school at times. 
um, you know, so, you know, learning and, and educating and dealing and then having to, you know, uh, go to a school where it's uh, predominantly white and then come back home and living in your community where it's predominantly black, uh, you know, learning the, the different uh, ways of being in those two different communities were, was a great education for me uh, at that time. Uh, and, you know, throughout life, uh, it's been it's been very helpful learning uh, what they've called now, they've labeled it code switching, where you learn that in different environments and different cultures, there are different ways of acting, different ways of being, uh, different ways of being, uh, and different ways of communicating. And uh, learning, having having those experiences at a young age was definitely uh, helpful to me uh, as I continue to move forward to play, but not not only just play, but also to, to learn and be educated. So, but as a basketball player, though, in that situation, uh, a basketball player that was excelling in that sport, did you find it harder or easier? I mean, you're in that kind of environment, but there's only a few of you there, but you're one of the best players, you're one of the best athletes. Was that looked upon differently or were you treated about the same? Um, so my, my first year, so I would have to leave my house uh, every morning at 4.30 um, and take uh, three buses to the end of the line and two trains to the end of the line and then walk a mile and a half to school to get there on time. And during that, my first year during that that walk, um, all, all the kids that I was going to school with, they would drive by me with their parents and everything, and they would never stop to pick me up. And I would have to walk, and, and then when I got to the lunchroom, they would be like, hey, how you doing? I was like, hey, man, didn't you see me walking? Like, <laughs> <laughs> couldn't, couldn't you stop? And it's like, well, you know, my dad, my mom, yeah. you know, they, they probably didn't want you in the car. Now, my second year, you know, after everyone saw how, how good a basketball player I was, then it was like they would stop, pull over, and now you can get in the car. <laughs> you got the pass, didn't you? Got the pass. But but during that period of time, what we what we all learn about each other is that, again, uh, through sport, you, you become human, and uh, you get to know each other. And uh, so that, that experience for, for me, again, just just learning and um, not only learning, but also bringing people together was was very powerful for me. So um, from a basketball playing standpoint, yeah, I stood out. But then my, my coach, Mr. Pingator, uh, brought me back to the values of the game in terms of being a good teammate. So while you're scoring 40 points, uh, you know, Tyrone and, and Anthony uh, and Hector, they're only scoring four points and they're not touching the ball, but you're shooting it every time. Yeah, you look great, <laughs> but how do you think your teammates right, feel? Right, right. And, and him reinforcing that, because I learned that at a young age, but, but still that message had to continuously be reinforced because you could score the basketball and you could uh, kind of have your way out on the floor. But from a teammate standpoint, I was so fortunate and so lucky that I had coaches who always drilled the importance of team 
in being a good teammate as opposed to being a great individual. Well, that message is, is delivered in different ways from different coaches and leaders, Isaiah. Um, but I'm wondering, I know you took, you took St. Joseph to a championship, and now you're being recruited, and you decide to play for one of the sternest, one of the, I'm not even sure which words to use about Bobby Knight. I know the, 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 the great words are a winner, a champion, a great coach. But it was, it was, there was no secret on how he coached and, and, and how he communicated a lot of times with his players. What, what made you, what gravitated you towards that, knowing that going in? So right now, Thoreau, you're giving me way too much credit because when you said, <laughs> I decided. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, back then, uh, you know, it, it's not like it is now where kids, they, they sit there with their hat and they go, I've decided that I'm yeah. going to go to such and such university. <laughs> My mother called the press conference. <laughs> And she said, my son has made his decision. That's awesome. He's going to go to Indiana University and play for Coach Knight. Are there any questions? (laughs) (laughs) End of story. Yeah, that's about how it went down. Uh, Because I I wanted to stay home, actually, and, and go to DePaul. Um, Mark Aguirre was at DePaul. Uh, yeah. Teddy Grubbs had gone to DePaul. Terry Cummings was there. You know, so all of us Chicago kids were going to stay home. But, you know, growing up on the west side of Chicago and, um, you know, my brothers, um, you know, uh, being in, in so much uh, trouble in terms of drugs and, and gangs and everything else, uh, my mom was like, you know, you, you got to get out of Chicago. And um, so she she made the decision that I was going to go to Indiana and, and play for Coach Knight, and 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 I got to tell you, it was it was one of the best decisions that 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 she ever made for me, and I'm so glad that that decision was made uh, because everything that you know during the recruitment process, and I'm sure you know just as as you were recruited uh, hard to to go to uh, South Carolina. You know, people people come in and they're like, okay, um, they're offering you all kinds of things at that time. That's right. And and we had nothing. I mean, nothing. Uh, we had no lights at that time. We uh, we didn't have uh, gas. Um, you know, we you know were behind on rent. We were you know remember they used to set your furniture outside if you couldn't pay the rent. Yep. Back then, but we were set out a couple of times and. I'll never forget, you know, this, this one coach from this one university came to the house and he said, Miss Thomas, um, you know, there's $50,000 in this briefcase. And, you know, me and my brothers and everybody else, you know, we were jumping up and down and, you know, you weren't high five and me and you were low five and you were giving each other five. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, you know, now, and when he opened up the briefcase, you know, you, you saw the rows of money. Now, we had never seen $50,000 before in our life. As a matter of fact, we hadn't even seen $100, you know, 
in our lives in terms of singles. So it could have been $200 in that briefcase, and we didn't, we wouldn't have known the difference. Right. But i never forget, you know, we all jumping up and down, and, and then as we panned over to our mom, she wasn't smiling. There was no laughter. There was nothing. So now you know, like, okay, we, we better sit down because <laughs> mom ain't happy right now. And i never forget my mom walked over to the briefcase, closed it, and looked at the, the gentleman who was there and said, my son is not for sale. Hmm. That was a powerful moment for me. Um, I didn't understand it at the time, but as I continued to get to get older and, and learn more about the world, um, you know, it was a, that was a powerful moment. Coach Knight came in and said, Mrs. Thomas, I'm going to offer you and your son three things. A, he'll be a gentleman. B, I'll teach him everything that I know about the game of basketball. And C, he'll graduate. And me and my brothers looked at each other and we were like, well, I guess we ain't going to Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And my mother was like, yeah, I like you. And that's where that's how I got to Indiana. Well, obviously, uh, Coach Knight came through with all three of those. And, and, and in 1981, of course, you took them to their – Fourth, I believe, NCAA national championship as a sophomore, and, uh, and then decided to declare for the draft after that as a sophomore. So let's uh, let's let's get into the the NBA. Um, you know, you have a storied career, obviously, with the Detroit Pistons, but talk to me about the the league then as as opposed to now. You know, I hear I get different opinions, you know, and there there's some of us old schoolers that look at the game and say, well, you know, we were tougher. It was better. Um, a lot of times I look at it and say, no, it's just different. It's still exciting. The game is just taking a different turn. There's not as much focus on, you know, in the paint, big guys. What's your perspective? You talk about it every day. So what's your perspective on where the league has gone as opposed to, the times when we had point guards like you and John Stockton and some of those other greats that that knew how to run a team. You know, you you hit the key word when you said, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's a different game uh, that we're watching. Uh, it's it's not like the the game that that we played. Um, everything's different about the the way uh, the game is is uh, officiated, uh, the way offenses are, are structured, uh, the way you have to defend. Um, and and the, 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 I, I would say that the, the lack of creativity uh, that I see now in the game, it does concern me because when when we were playing, and, and I would say, I won't, I won't even say when we were playing, I'll, I'll just make the critique of the two different eras. Right. Um, in our era, you you had all different kinds of body types that were able to play. Uh, you and Mark Eaton, 
were were two drastically different players with different skill sets. Um, you know, um, you know, you take a Oliver Miller, you take um, um, a Mark Aguirre or, or Adrian Dantley. You know, all these players that I'm naming uh, are all different sizes, different shapes, with different skills. Right. And and I'll, I'll say, you know, in the '80s, the the dominant players, um, the five dominant players: Dr. J, Larry Bird, Kareem. Magic, Jordan, right? Let's let's take those five players, and we would say none of them, none of them played the same. That's right. They all were different. When you look at this era, everyone has the same skill set, same body type, uh, and basically the the same skill set. So there's no there's no uniqueness about um, any anyone anymore. I mean, we we loved Steph Curry uh, because he he increased the range of of shooting uh, for 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 point guards or for guards. Period. Uh, what he and Clay Thompson did for uh, extending the range of shooting uh, that was acceptable for the general public and for all of us watching. You know, it's something that will that will go down in history. Right. Um, so, but when you look at you know just the the differences in players, all of them now are very similar to each other with the same style. Uh, and I would I would say there's there's no uniqueness about them. But I don't blame that on the players. I really put that on the coaching staff and the systems that they have been forced to put their games inside. Right. Uh, it makes so sense. To me, that's, that's the difference. No, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we talk about the, I look at the jazz team here that I work for and I see them every day. And I look at a guy like Rudy Gobert and see that he's found a place on a team to try to be effective. There's no, there's no set place for him to post up. He's not a, you know, he's seven feet tall, and and he's not a jump shooter, but he 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 has to try to survive in a game by one creating opportunities for you know other players, and maybe also himself at the rim with lobs and things like that. But it's a totally different dynamic now that the big has to play. You've got to be able to stretch the floor, as we call it, and shoot the jump shot. Um, but there's not many of those around the league. You see what Houston did last year, playing small ball. Um, long term, I'm not sure how effective that can be, but you're exactly right. Uh, that creativity, that that role that a guy like Mark Eaton had, or myself, or or you know, or Carl had, um, has has definitely changed the game. So I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, I don't want to overstay my welcome, and I, I'm sure appreciative of you being on on the show. A couple more questions I want to ask you about: What's your most triumphant moment in your? I wouldn't even say your your career. You can include your career, but your life. What's your most triumphant moment that you've been able to to enjoy? Um. So, uh, 
personally uh, and, and professionally. So, so personally, I, I would say um, uh, right now um, I met my I met my my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Uh, we met in college at Indiana, and um, we have been married now close to you know thirty six, thirty seven years, and. Um, and so maintaining a, a marriage, um, through, through sports and entertainment, uh, through everything that we've been able, that we've had to endure and go through yeah. that, that's, that's been big because I was one of those guys growing up again on the West side of Chicago and I never get married. I don't know what marriage looked like. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like it's like, Hey man. And, uh, so so uh, being able to to maintain that as, is 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 a, is a big um, uh, personal achievement. And then on the other side of personal achievement is uh, also uh, graduating, um, you know, from college and also going on to get my master's uh, in education from from UC uh, Berkeley. Uh, those are those are two personal achievements that. I thought was way beyond my reach yeah. and never thought that I would be able to achieve when I was, you know, growing up on the West side of Chicago. I never, I didn't even know that these two things existed, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, I would say from a career standpoint, you know, just, you know, winning back to back championships in the NBA, uh, you know how difficult uh, it is to win in the NBA, and then doing it as a as a small guard when when the bigs uh, dominated, uh, you know the the yes. earth or the NBA, so to speak. <laughs> um, but but doing it in that era, um, you know that was that that's definitely um, you know a, a big time personal accomplishment from a professional standpoint. And another thing you and I have in common, which I'll end on here, uh, in 1987, you won the J. Walter Kennedy Award for community service uh, in the NBA. And that just, I think, speaks volumes of what you've been able to do past basketball. Always philanthropic, but, but also full of service. So I, I guess I'd like to end this on... You know some of the things that that you're really focusing on now in your business life, and also, uh, you know, I know that you you help a lot of people in the things that you do. But um, let our listeners know some of the things that that you're doing right now that have that go way beyond a lot of the things we're talking about here in basketball. Well, the 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 biggest focus that I think all of us right now are are engaged in is um, is is trying to end systemic racism in, in our society. Um, so working with the, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and also uh, expanding that uh, into into Canada, where I was the co-founder of the Toronto Raptors. Um, you know, we just uh, started. You know, uh, the Raptors have We the North. So we just started uh, Black North, uh, you know, in in Canada, that we will be bringing in corporate America, just, I mean, corporate uh, Canada, just like we brought in corporate America, 
to enlist in helping us change systemic racism. Uh, the other thing, um, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, I'm the owner, uh, importer of Sherlon Champagne, um, and uh, we're the, the largest uh, African-American-owned uh, champagne company in the world, uh, first press uh, champagne, uh, low in sugar to zero sugar. Um, and currently, uh, we're the fastest growing champagne uh, here in the United States. Wow. And was just um, named um, vice chairman and CEO of uh, a company called One World Farmer, uh, where we are um, we are ingredients company, and our main ingredients is uh, CBD and hemp uh, that we are uh, transporting and importing and exporting uh, all over the world right now. You're a busy so man. Those are Big. those are the two major um, businesses that I'm in right now. You're a now. busy man. You are just doing it and i just i love it and so even though i'm a couple of a few days older than you are i look up to you man you are just uh you're an amazing guy obviously you're a great player the numbers don't lie they speak for themselves that's why you're one of the 50 greatest ever and i sure i so appreciate you being on the show today and um, i hope our listeners really got a chance to get to know you and and what you're about and continue to follow you and the things that you do. So Isaiah Thomas, thank you for joining me on Thorough Talk and uh, God bless you, man, and the best to you. And I'm sure we'll be seeing each other at some of these uh, NBA retired players functions or somewhere in in the broadcasting world. Thanks again, Isaiah. Well, thank you. And and I always look up to you, physically <laughs> <laughs> and also professionally. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Zeke. Take care of yourself, my friend. All right, you too. Thank you, everybody, for joining me this week on Thorough Talk with Isaiah Thomas, and we just look we look forward to being with you again next week. Join us and take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>